the book of Haggai. Haggai. We just finished a series in Jonah. You'd, you'd be in the right neighborhood if you turned to Jonah, but you'd have to go a little further right. And you would come across Habakkuk and Zephaniah, and then you'll see Haggai. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 769. So this year, during Advent, today is Advent week number one, this year for the for the four weeks of Advent, we're going to look at four different passages from the minor prophets. Four passages from the minor prophets that point forward prophetically to Christ Jesus. So by way of reminder, there are four major prophets in the Old Testament. The four major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now they're called major prophets, not because they're more important than the others, but because the books they wrote were longer. At the end of the Old Testament, the last 12 books of the Old Testament clumped together are the 12 minor prophets. Again, minor not because they're less important, but minor prophets because the books they wrote are shorter. So during my time here, I have preached through one of the major prophets, that would be Daniel, and I have preached through two of the minor prophets, Habakkuk, and we just finished a little series in Jonah. So this morning we'll be looking at Haggai, and we're going to see how the prophetic words in the book of Haggai looked forward with hope to the coming ministry of the Messiah. So I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read our text. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for the start of the Advent season. I pray that this would be a season marked by hope and joy for all of us. I recognize that uh, for some people, uh, this is a hard season, not necessarily a joy-filled season, but a hard season. And so I pray that you would draw near to and comfort those who maybe aren't looking forward to the Advent season. I pray that you would stir in all of us a renewed sense of hope and faith belief that you are here with us and confidence that you are going to return bodily one day, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would stir that in us. I pray that you would be at work amongst your people, among, amongst us. Uh, I pray that you'd be shaping us and fashioning us into the people that you have created, called, and redeemed us to be. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, and I'm going to read uh, Haggai 2 and verses 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Zozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, ask them, Who of you has left, left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Zozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, 
and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. And this is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In order to make sense of this prophecy, I want for us this morning to consider three things. I want us to consider Haggai's story. I want for us then to turn to Jesus' story. And then finally, we'll finish by considering our story. Okay? So first of all, let's get oriented to Haggai's story. The events of Haggai happened almost exactly 2,500 years ago from today. In the fall, we know this for sure, uh, by, the way, by the dates that are referenced within the book, it was in the fall of 520 B.C., which means that the things that happened in Haggai happened about 500 years before the birth of Christ. Now that is a long time, 500 years. The birth of Christ was as far removed from the time of Haggai as the Reformation is removed from us. Right? And the difference is we can look back on the Reformation 500 years ago and we know that it happened. The people in Haggai's day had to look forward to the coming Messiah, not knowing when it would happen, but hoping and believing and trusting that one day it would. And that's what the time of Advent is really all about. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of anticipating. It's a time of believing. It's a time when we try to imagine what it must have felt like for God's people to be waiting generation after generation for the Messiah to come. And it's also a time when we remember, we remind ourselves that we too are still waiting, hoping, and believing that Christ will come again. That Christ will come and finish what he started and fully establish his kingdom. Now the historical background to Haggai is this. The people of Israel had built a, a beautiful and glorious and massive temple in Jerusalem. That was way back in the days of Solomon, long before Haggai. Since that time, they had collectively as a nation gone through peaks and valleys. Uh, they'd gone through times of faithfulness and through times of rebellion. And by the time we get to Haggai, they're just starting to come out of one of their valleys of rebellion. The temple itself, uh, as, as, as discipline from the Lord, the temple itself had been destroyed by the Babylonians in the year 586 B.C., so about 60 years prior uh, to the book of Haggai, the temple had been destroyed. And after coming in and destroying the temple, the Babylonians then had carried many of the Israelites themselves off 
into exile, taken them to Babylon, including the prophet Daniel was one of those who was snatched up and taken away. Eventually, God's people began to return from exile. They were released and allowed to return to the land of promise. And that happened in the year 538. They started to come back. Uh, And they immediately, when they came back, they immediately began rebuilding the temple. And during the time of Haggai, we find ourselves in the middle of this massive reconstruction project, rebuilding the temple. And what we discover in the book of Haggai is that it's really not going that well. The Lord speaks through Haggai and he says to the people, look, I brought you back from exile and it should have been on the top of your priority list when you, as, as soon as you got back, the first thing that you should have devoted yourself to is rebuilding the temple because the temple is the sign of our covenant relationship and it's the sign of my presence with you. So you should have done that first. You should have invested everything you had into that. But instead, what I find you doing is putting most of your time, most of your talent, most of your resources, most of your money into building your own houses. That seems to be the most important thing to you is building your own houses. And you're barely giving anything, any time or any money into the rebuilding of the temple. That tells me that your priorities are all wrong. That's what God says to the people through Haggai, and that rebuke has the desired effect on them, kind of wakes them up from their selfishness and causes them to focus on the work of getting the temple built, right? They said, oh yeah, he's right. That's right. God should be the priority. The temple should come before our homes. Let's get this temple built. So that's good. That's good. But then we come to chapter 2, and And here's the problem that we run into in chapter 2. There were people there in Haggai's time who still remembered what the original temple was like. The older members, the senior members of the congregation, they had been to the original temple. They had been inside the original temple. And now this new one that's just wrapping up, getting rebuilt, it's kind of a disappointment for those who knew what the original was like. The new one isn't nearly as great, isn't nearly as glorious as the original. That's what verse 3 is saying, right? He says, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, some were. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Right? To, to, To the people who knew the original, this new one, not so impressive, not so great. It's all right. It's okay. It's a temple but it's nothing like the first one. You know what that feels like, right? To wait and wait and wait and anticipate something, and then when that something finally arrives, it's a disappointment. You know that feeling? That's a pretty bad feeling. Uh, I'll give you a silly example. This past week, my son and I, we found out about a butcher in Japan that makes Kobe beef croquettes. And... uh, (laughs) He sells these Kobe beef croquettes online. He ships anywhere. He ships to Canada. We checked. And uh, I guess, I don't know, I guess Kobe beef is supposed to be like this thing, like the best beef in the world. Uh, some, surely people here know this better than me, but apparently these cows are given massages every day. They like live in cow spas. They, they drink beer instead of water. And apparently, that's what I'm told. <laughs> apparently... 
as a result of this very happy, very laid back and soft bovine life that they live, apparently that makes the best tasting beef. I have a hard time believing that it's better than Alberta beef, but it, uh, apparently Kobe beef is like the thing. So this butcher makes these, this Kobe beef into croquettes. He ships internationally. Elliot and, I, Elliot and I thought, well, that'll be fun. We'll try these extraordinary croquettes. Uh, they're not actually that expensive. They're like 20 bucks for a package. So, but the problem is, we found out, there's a waiting list. And the current wait, you're, you're going to think I'm kidding, but I'm not. The current wait is 30 years. <laughs> yep, you can look it up. So we saw that. We had a good laugh about that. If we ordered now, we will be enjoying this meal when I'm 78. Elliot will be 43. Now listen, I don't care how good those croquettes are. It's tough to imagine that when they finally arrive, they could be anything but a disappointment, right? After 30 years of buildup, it's going to be a disappointment. How could they possibly live up to that hype and anticipation? Okay, that's kind of, kind of how it was with the second temple. It was a 60-year wait, and when it finally arrived... It was a disappointment. And then in the middle, everybody's thinking, ah, okay, well, it's not what we hoped it would be. It's all right, but it's not like the last one. In the middle of that disappointment, and that's pretty disappointing, God gives the Israelites a promise about something that's going to happen in the future. And the promise is, he's like, okay, I get it. I get it. You're a little disappointed by this, but listen, I'm going to do something in the future. And when I do, it's going to exceed even the glory of the first temple. It's going to be even better than that. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that, all the, treasures of, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. Okay? So, so God's saying, look, I get it that you're disappointed now, but I want you to know the day is coming when the latter glory of this house is going to exceed, be greater than that of the former. So he's basically, he's saying, look, I get it that you're disappointed, but don't worry. I got this. And this home is eventually going to be more glorious than you can even imagine. Even more glorious than the previous temple. I will fill it with my glory. And I'm going to expand my ministry so that all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations are going to be giving towards this project one day. And I'm going to bring peace. That's a very encouraging promise. That's also a little bit of vague promise and the result is that people are left with hope but they're also left wondering all right good that's encouraging but how exactly is God going to accomplish this and when is he going to do it and that brings us to Jesus's story by the time Jesus arrives the second temple has been it's still standing but it's been renovated once again it's been upgraded and now it's pretty glorious it's pretty glorious 
But through his ministry, Jesus is going to reveal that actually the building, great as it is, the building is no longer the point. Jesus has come to fulfill Haggai's prophecy in ways that no one really expected, in ways that aren't really about a building. We get a clue to that right at the beginning of the book of John. Remember in John's prologue in the opening, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I expect that you know, I expect you've probably heard that the verb there, dwelt, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there is literally tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt in a special and concentrated way among his people. And this verse in John is a clue that through the incarnation, God now dwells with us in a more personal and more immediate way than through a building, even an impressive and glorious building like the temple. Now, later in his ministry, Jesus referred to himself as the temple. Just one chapter later, in John chapter 2, we overhear Jesus saying, remember, he's arguing with the professional religious guys, and he says, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. And they don't get it, and they're upset, and they say, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? I'd like to see you try. And then John gives us a commentary on that interchange, and he says, well, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You remember that in Haggai, when the people were struggling with their disappointment with the temple, God came and he promised, and he said, you know what, I, here's my promise to you, one day I'm going to fill this house, I'm going to fill it with my glory. And the latter glory of this house is going to be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace. Well, in which place? In the temple. In which temple? Not the building. But the person, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, who came to bring us back into covenant relationship with the Lord of hosts. It turns out we're the exiles who were taken captive and brought into exile and who have then been brought back and brought near to God through the ministry of the Messiah. I remember how in Haggai's time, the people rebuilt the temple, and then they were disappointed because it didn't ma match their expectations. The same thing happened with the temple that is Jesus. Jesus came. He tabernacled with them. He was God with them. He came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He made the statement, I and the Father are one. And then he died. He died a shameful and painful death, and it was an embarrassment to his followers. It, and once again, the people of God are left disappointed and confused. We, 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 we thought we knew the plan. We thought things were going according to plan, and now this. And we're disappointed again. He was supposed to be the one. We thought we had this thing figured out. We thought that Jesus was going to overthrow our oppressors, establish his righteous reign right here, right now on earth, and now he's dead. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story either. Death didn't win that fight. 
Remember what he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Sure enough, three days after his death, Jesus rose again from the dead. The temple of his body was rebuilt and hope was restored. But the story doesn't end there either. Remember, the theme of Haggai is rebuilding the temple. It gets rebuilt. It's a disappointment. God says, okay, but better things are coming. Jesus comes, claims to be the temple. He gets killed. The people are disappointed. Then he raises again from the dead, and everyone's rejoicing and hope is restored. But then there's another plot twist. He goes away again. But listen to what he says about that. He said, before he left, he said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. That's one of the first biblical indications that God's plan in the new covenant is to turn his people into his temple. We, the people of God, will be the place where God dwells on earth in a concentrated and special way. And now we start to see what it was that God was talking about through Haggai all those years ago. He said, I'll fill this house with glory. The latter glory will be greater than the former. And in this place, in this house, I will give peace. And the people heard it. And they looked at their second-rate temple that they had just built. And it didn't even compare with the former glory. And they said, really? How? Because they thought that God was talking about bricks and mortar, but he was talking about his son, his spirit, and his people. And so then we get to 1 Corinthians and chapter 3, a verse that I was referencing in the children's message, where, where God says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's addressed to the church. You are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And we realize, oh, that's the temple that Haggai was talking about. We're the temple, God's people, the church. We are the place where God dwells on earth in a special way. We are the place where God has established his peace on earth. And similarly, in 1 Peter, in chapter 2, we read, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, speaking to the church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Right? Which is a direct reference to Haggai. The theme of which is all about houses. God's house needs to be re rebuilt, but the people are focusing on their own houses, Finally, they get their priorities right. They build God's house, but it doesn't turn out great. Now, 500 years later, we discover that God's plan is for his people to be his house, a house made of living stones. And maybe we hear that and you think, oh, great. The prophecy was given in Haggai. It was fulfilled in Christ. It was expanded and passed on to his people. The end. But it isn't the end. Despite already being indwelt by the Spirit of God, which we are, we have not yet arrived at our final destination. And in this life, we still experience disappointment. And that's one of the things that makes the Advent season so powerful. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipating. It's a season of hope. Hope implies that all is not as it should be right now, but it believes that one day it will be. 
Right? If you're waiting for good news, if you're hoping for good news, that means the good news hasn't arrived yet. That's why you're hoping for it. If you, once you get the good news, you're not hoping for it anymore. You have it. Right? I've, I find it hard to believe, but lately our eldest daughter has been busy sending off applications to universities. And uh, so you send those out and then you wait. You wait to hear back from the universities and you wait with hope, hoping that she'll be accepted. This past week, we, we did receive an acceptance letter from one of those universities, so now we're no longer hoping that she will get accepted. We're rejoicing that she has been accepted. Our hope has turned to rejoicing. That's how hope works. Once your hopes are fulfilled, you go from hoping to rejoicing. Right? All right, I'll close with this final example, a recent example from my own life. A good friend of mine back home, Corey, Corey Castaneda, he's just a few years older than me. Uh, he's, been, he's been struggling with uh, serious illness uh, for a while now. For, uh, just about the time we left town six years ago is when he started having these symptoms and, and, and this illness. And so just before we left to come here, we had a special prayer meeting for him. We anointed him with oil and we prayed for his healing, just like the Bible tells us to do. And then over the past six years, he's gone through times of remission and relative health, and he's gone through times of debilitating sickness. So early this month, I got a message from Corey's wife, sent the message saying, come and celebrate with us because Corey is finally healed. He's finally fully healed. That's what it said. That's good news, right? Yes, that is good news. That is also disappointing news at the same time. Because I'm pretty sure you can guess what the next line was in that message. On November 5th, Corey faithfully finished his race, and Corey is rejoicing in the presence of the one he loves most. Right? So it's good news, and it's disappointing news all at the same time. Right? That's what Advent hope is all about. It is an honest recognition that all is not well here. And at the same time, it is a deep-rooted, unshakable, even defiant belief that one day, it will be. One day, everything is going to be made right. Right? We acknowledge that it's not right now, and yet we believe and hope that one day it will be. That's our Advent hope. Think of all those generations of Israelites who said to their children, look, honey, I know things are hard now. I know everything is not as it should be right now. But God has promised that one day he's going to send someone who's going to make everything right. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know who, but we know that he will because he's promised. And our God is a promise-keeping God. Children were taught to believe that. Those children passed that torch of hope on to their children, who took that torch of hope and passed it on to their children. Generation after generation, that torch of messianic hope stayed lit. Sometimes it looked like it was smoldering and going to go out, but it didn't. It stayed lit. If you want a torch to stay lit, you got to father the flame 
right? You have to care for it. You have to cultivate it. You have to feed it. They give it fuel. You have to, you have to watch, wait, hope, believe. Keep it going. Pass it on. Believe that the Messiah is coming. We don't know when, but we know that, we know that he will. And the children take that torch and they carry it throughout their life and they pass it on to their children and on and on and on it goes. And eventually he did come. He did. Not in the way that they thought he would, but he did come. He came in fulfillment of the prophecies in Haggai and in fulfillment of many other prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And he came bringing hope by securing our salvation through his atoning death on the cross. That is a Christmas present that's available to us today. Right now. You can open up that gift today if you want. But what he didn't do is make everything right. What he didn't do is fully establish his perfect kingdom on earth right now. Not yet. We still wait for that. But we wait with confident hope, believing that the God who has fulfilled so many promises in the past will surely make good on his promise to return and finish what he started. And so we wait We hope, we believe, we expect that he will come again and it will be glorious. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for this season that we have entered into. We are reminded of that you, your people are a people that have always been marked by hope. People watching, waiting, believing, anticipating. And we too are marked by hope. We wait, but we wait with hope. We wait, but we wait with confidence, knowing that you will keep every promise that you make, that you will one day return. When you do, it will be glorious, and you will put everything right. We pray this in your name. Amen.